Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The author of The Other Berlin Girl and The White Queen, Philippa Gregory is one of our most celebrated historical novelists. Her new book, Normal Women, is straight history, telling the story of English women from 1066 to modern times. She joined author and critic Erica Wagner last week to tell us more. I'm going to start, Philippa, by asking you about the origins of this project. I think it's been a passion project for quite a long time. Tell us how it began for you. Uh, Well, I've been researching and writing for 10 years, not non-stop and not consistently uh, on this, because throughout that time I've also been publishing my novels. But around about 10, 12 years ago, I had the, you would think, blindingly obvious realisation that what I was doing was finding an extraordinary woman, writing a novel about her, and then I would go out and talk about the book to book audiences, and they would say, how did you find her? And I would go, I don't know, it's just so extraordinary. This one I found this way, this one I found that way. And then after doing this, I mean... 15 times, I went, it cannot be that I am just falling by incredible good luck and talent over one extraordinary woman after another. More likely, there are millions of extraordinary women with extraordinary lives and extraordinary challenges overcome in extraordinarily different ways. And all I'm doing is looking. And when you look, you find them. And once I realized that. I went, I don't really want to do the history of English women one at a time. That's going to be a long project. But what I do want to do is what I I want to, in a sense, give these women a voice. But more than that, I want to make a sort of companion book to what we think of as the history of England, which is actually the history of English men and what English men think is important and what English men want to tell each other about. Basically, when you read something like Winston Churchill's A History of English-Speaking People, he names, in the index, named men, 1,500. Named women, 98. 
And that's centuries. That's the English-speaking peoples. That takes in all of America as well. It's extraordinary. And some of the 98 are just wives and mothers, and they're only there because they had the good fortune to marry or give birth to an interesting man. And there's more. You know, there's so much more to the history of women than giving birth to interesting men. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, well, I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And... I, I didn't quite know where to start, but I thought I'd start at 1066, and then I realised that that is almost the ideal place to start, because it, at 1066, in come the Normans, who become the upper class of the country by virtue of defeating the Anglo-Saxon army, and they are still the upper class of the country today. So Duke of Westminster, the richest man in England after the royal family, he's Hugh Le Grandveneur. He's Hugh the Huntsman. He's William of Normandy's Huntsman. And when they come in, you don't just get this, this class that sit on top of all of the native indigenous English people then. You get the introduction of Norman law, which doesn't see women at all, in which women have no rights. You get the introduction of Norman marriages, in which there is no divorce, except you can possibly get an annulment if you're incredibly rich and very influential, i.e. a man a rich man, and you get uh, the introduction of Norman inheritance traditions, which is from a man to his son, in which women are completely sidelined, and part of the introduction of Norman marriage law is that everything that a woman owns on marriage becomes her husband's. And you get the introduction of feudalism, which puts women at the bottom of this pyramid. The top is the king, the bottom are the serfs, and the only people lower than serfs, other than slaves, <coughs> are their wives. And that is a lasting development. So women don't get to own their own property after marriage until 1850. The changes the Normans bring in, which... So for in 800 years? <coughs> 800 years, women are fundamentally under Norman law of feudalism. Can you tell us a little bit how it was before that, what that change... I can only tell you a little bit. Yes, because because it's Anglo-Saxons, and I didn't really do Anglo-Saxons. I started. Yes, I started with but the it's Norman. just to see the yeah. shift. Yeah. Well, there. You know, we know there are when they come in with the Doomsday Book and they count landowners. We know that there are substantial women landowners. Harold's uh, the one who gets killed at Hastings. His own wife and his mother own between them most of the south of England. Uh, women have authority. You have ruling queens, Anglo-Saxon queens. Women have the right to uh, leave their husbands if they want to. And uh, when they leave them, they take their children and they keep their property on marriage. So it's an extraordinary disaster for English women when the Normans come in. It's not good for anybody except the Normans, uh, but it's, it's a disaster for women. It's striking. It makes me think the first great Norman uh, cathedral, Durham Cathedral, which if you start to think about that history, it's high on the hill and you can see seven counties if you climb up on the tower and you realize that it's a building for surveillance. Absolutely. And if you look at the castles that they build, I mean, they throw them up at incredible speed. But it, it, I've got a little map somewhere and it's like England's got smallpox or something. It's just covered with little castles because it's literally an invading army that holds the country down for 
actually, in some ways, for the next 900 years. But you find these, you know, as in this early period that you write about in the book, there are these extraordinary stories and, and will come to the way you write about same-sex relationships through the books. But one of the things that's so striking to me is you write about in the pre-Norman period, in the 8th century, I think, there's, for instance, a record of marriages between women. Yes, marriage in church for women was allowed right the way up to uh, the 19th century, the late 19th century. And then what's so extraordinary... It's so extraordinary to me today. Is like the church today goes like we can't marry women in church, and you go, you've been doing it for hundreds of years. You know, nobody said that that, what, that it wasn't okay then, and you know it was known. So two women would come and get married in church, and that their names would be entered in the register. There was no, it was no subterfuge. It wasn't that anybody was passing as a man. And in the 18th century, the the phrase female husband was so commonly used that it was used without explanation. Another thing I love about this book is the way that we see the result of technologies that have been presented through the prism of progress previously, with progress usually being a male idea. One of the things that really struck me is the introduction of the spinning wheel. Can you say something about that? Which, again, I've always thought, great, the spinning wheel, enabling, you know, more cloth to be made, more prosperity. But it had a fascinating sort of counterside. Well, initially, people are, women are spinning, and it's always women, uh, with a distaff, which is where you get the, the, the word from to mean women. So you've got a pole, which looks a bit like a broom handle, and you stick it in your belt, and you put your hank of, of fleece, on top and you twist out of that a thread and you put the thread on a little weight which is literally like a plug you know like the sort of thing you use to switch lights off with you know a light switch pull that sort of weight that sort of size and you walk around everywhere all the things you have to do all day going down to feed the hens going to the well coming back talking to somebody doing something else and all the time you take this with you and you spin as you go and this this the weight twists around at the bottom and makes wool and you wind it up as you go and uh of course you are walking with other women also doing that you're meeting at the well all together you're basically supervising your community life also. You're watching after your children. You're doing all of the chores that you have to walk to the fields to do and walk back, spinning all the time. And everybody sees that you're spinning and everybody else is spinning. And you all know how much you're spinning. And you also know that the merchant, the middle, we say middleman, but it was almost always a woman, the, the woman in the textile trade is going to come and collect your spun wool and take it to the weavers, who are often men, but also often women also. And this is a very, very transparent work, and it's very transparent, profitable work as well. And women become the experts in the textile business and the biggest export for Britain at the time are textiles. So women are literally the engine of this enormous industry. And then people in, then, I don't know who invents the spinning wheel. I think it may be a man. I won't take credit for that, for the sex. But um, they invent the spinning wheel and immediately you can spin much 
much more fast, much faster. You've got a machine that's that's doing the spinning for you, but uh, you can't. No woman can afford to buy it. It's quite an expensive piece of kit. So she's either got to borrow to buy it, and it's very difficult to borrow as a woman because uh, you don't have a legally you don't have a legal name so if you put your name on a contract it basically means nothing you can only borrow from people who personally trust you so nobody can ever develop their industries or even develop their farming uh, because you can't get capital so women who want a spinning wheel have to go in debt to probably the middle person who's buying their wool from them so you get basically the invention of sweatshop work so they're buying the equipment out of the product of the equipment and of course in turn the spinning wheel is a fixed piece of kit it comes into your house no longer are you doing your other work in touch with the other workers in the same business. You are now basically a sweated worker at home, home working, and nobody knows your production, nobody knows your rate, you don't know theirs, and the start of the exploitation of the woman home worker starts there. I just think that's completely fascinating because it's the law of what you keep seeing in this book, to me, is the law of unintended consequences or intended. <laughs> Consequences. I mean, I, it's very easy to vilify men, uh, extremely easy. I'm sorry they make it so easy for us to do. <laughs> I apologize for their short-sightedness in being so incredibly transparent in the way they exploit women. However, um, some of these consequences are absolutely not intended, but they all flow from the fact that if, if you can avoid paying a woman the proper rate for the job, all employers will. And in men, uh, that women's savings do not belong to them, that women's wages do not belong to them. So it does actually spin out automatically from the decision made by the Normans to favour men over women in every, every walk of life. Since you've mentioned that topic, tell us when it was that women had wage equality with men. Does anybody know when women got equal pay in this country? Give us a guess. No? Never? 1349. 1349, women got equal pay with men. Thereafter, never. There's a very simple reason for that. 1348 was when the Black Death came through England and basically half the population died. And so there was there were empty farms, there was empty land, the landlords couldn't collect any rent, uh, the taxpayers couldn't collect any tax, and literally animals died in the field because there was nobody to look after them. Houses stood empty, workshops stood empty, there was a desperate need for people to come to work. And so employers and landlords didn't care if you were a man or a woman or the regularly occurring hermaphrodite. It really, really, really didn't matter. There were regularly occurring hermaphrodites. We can talk about that too. It really didn't matter that the, the desperate need was to get people to work and uh, to get the country going again. And women joined craft guilds. Women stepped into their father's uh, jobs. They stepped into their dead husband's jobs. Widows ran farms. And you have this explosion of women. They became priests too. Yes. They? The Bishop of uh, Bath says that if you're dying... 
and you can't get a priest because there was this, of course, priests died too. So you have this terrible shortage of clergy. So if you're dying and you can't get a priest, you can confess to a layman or in extreme emergency to a woman. <laughs> and there's women working as priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And then, of course, a little only... 20 years later on, you get the uh, Statute of Labours, the first law controlling the wages for people, and it establishes, firstly, that wages cannot stay at this reasonable high level, but have got to be crushed down, that workers can't have mobility, so they can't go to a better employer somewhere else, and that there is a differential built into the law between women's wages and men's wages. And that's the end of it, really. That's the last time we get equal pay in this country. Extraordinary. But it also speaks to something that we were talking about in the green room. It seems to me that where, so this is caused by the Black Death, there's a shortage of people to, to do anything, so women step forward. But this, this cycle has happened many times in history, and after the First World War, after the Second World War. But then there's always seems to be a backlash. There's always, I mean, whenever there's chaos or crisis, so English Civil War, women step forward, get the jobs, do the work, become incredibly successful in, in the jobs and the work. And as soon as an industry starts paying good money or starts becoming profitable or starts expanding, you find that there's generally a pushback from men who start joining it and then making up rules which exclude women from it. And What's really interesting to me also is that you start to get this sort of, in Marxist terms, you call it superstructure, but you get this sort of belief floating out all around society from priests and philosophers and advisors, generally that this work is not right for women. For some reason or another, they shouldn't be doing it. And that's when you start really perpetuating these myths about women's frailty and lack of strength. So when, when you want everybody working in the coal mines. Apparently it's quite all right to have women in the coal mines. When you actually start mechanizing and the profits can be increased from the coal mines, uh, then you don't want women working in the coal mines anymore because the men want to improve the wages. And one of the ways of doing that is by saying, this is a craft and you can only join this union if you're a man. And the nicer people perhaps go like it would be better for women if they weren't Having dragging, to do that, dra dragging a cart, uh, bent double. But mostly they go like, this is inappropriate, it's improper for women to do this. And all of a sudden you get this great pressure of concern about what are women's lives like. Whereas, I mean, at the same time, they're being, you know, abused in the streets daily with nobody worrying at all. I copied out a, a little passage from a 19th century thinker that you quote, um, W.R. Gregg. <laughs> my, my hero. <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Those wild schemers who would throw open the professions to women and teach them to become lawyers and physicians and professors, know little of life and less of physiology, with a capital P, 
The brain and the frame of woman are formed with admirable suitability to their appropriate work, for which subtlety and sensitiveness, not strength and tenacity of fibre, are required. The cerebral organisation of the female is far more delicate than that of the man. The continuity and severity of application needed to acquire real mastery in any profession or over any science are denied to women and can never with impunity be attempted by them. Mind and health would almost invariably break down under the task. <laughs> it's really rather extraordinary. But as you say, it begins with this, it's, it has an economic it's, it's always basis. money. The whole thing, I think, is money. So even the definition of gender, we'd say gender, now they say sex. I tend to say sex because then I know what I'm talking about. But even the definition of sex becomes a matter of law when uh, they realise that if a, a male heir becomes uh, tr transitions to become a woman which was not in you know was not uncommon then you can't they then they've got to basically the the legal expert says you've got to choose your sex and then you've got to stay in your lane because what we can't have is men turning into women and then in, trying to inherit the main thing is who gets the money it's always who gets the money and what one of again so many fascinating things but we see how in the early modern period there was a great deal of fluidity and acceptance of fluidity between the sexes, the genders, but it is economics that kind of closes things down. It is economics that closes it down legally because they want to make sure that male inheritance is absolutely preserved. And then round about the 18th century, there's this, I, I mean, I'd... There are so many reasons for it to happen. I'm not sure what happens, but round about the 18th century, people start wanting to marry for love. That becomes a trope in the novel and then becomes transferred, I believe, slightly after into the real world. People start really emphasising gender differences. You get the invention of the lady as being a sort of significantly different person from a woman in the streets, and that brings with it a great deal of anxiety about what is female behaviour, what is ladylike behaviour. So almost everything that you read, like Greg there, from the 18th century, when they're saying women are like this, they mean ladies are like this. Nobody reduces the burden on a, work, on a, for working, a, work, class for a working class woman, except her pay packet is a lot lighter. <laughs> and this also affects how women's desire is perceived. And you write, of course, you write about Anne Lister, who was on our screens recently as Gentleman Jack, but it's interesting how she perceived her own desire as manly, she said. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about Anne Lister, is obviously she is very, very unusual. I mean, unique as far as we know, in that she keeps a, a sex diary of her encounters with women. And she's very, very clear that she feels desire only for women and that she's going to pursue it. Because she's wealthy, because she's single, because she's uh, an orphan, she is able to lead a far freer life than almost 
one would imagine almost any other woman in England. But what I found really interesting about her is, is not just that she calls her desires manly, by which she means strong, potent, but that initially one of the things she says in her diaries is that she thinks that she's incredibly unusual to feel sexual desire. It's not that she thinks she's incredibly unusual to desire women. It's not her, you know, what we would now describe as lesbianism that she thinks is it's really It's the fact of desire at all. It's desire at all. Because by then, uh, we're after the 18th century, and we've started to build this myth that uh, women do not have strong appetites actually for anything. So there's a lovely quote which says, you shouldn't eat greedily, you shouldn't eat with relish, you shouldn't eat with appetite. Lord Byron disliked to see a lady eat. You could like, well, fair enough. You know, but like, you know, does that mean that none of us can ever have a sandwich? I mean, it's just... <laughs> um, will you read a little bit? I will. For us? I was going to read a bit. I, I will skip through. There's going to require a bit of coordination here because I've got the microphone on the book. But um, I was going to make the connection which I make in the book, which I don't know anybody else makes particularly, between women being squeezed out of medicine uh, and medical practice and how that, in a sense, directs them into uh, witchcraft. Mother Edwin worked as a surgeon in Christ's Hospital, London, in 1563. Mrs. Cock was a surgeon apothecary there in 1576, as was Alice Gordon in 1598. Cecily Baldry got her surgery license from the Bishop of Norwich in 1568. Only one woman in Exeter was licensed to be a surgeon in the whole of the reign of Elizabeth, Mary Connolly's of Bodmin. Isabel Warwick was allowed to practice as a surgeon in York in 1572 because of her good reputation. Two named women physicians emerged from the Kent probate records. Mrs. Wright, who provided physic and advice, was fetched from her home in Canterbury to a dying patient in 1635. And Mrs. Jacob of Canterbury was one of a family of physicians in 1613. She was probably still working with her son in 1659 when she was named in the probate records of her patients. Nursing opportunities for low-paid women expanded as the Elizabethan parishes were obliged by law to provide poor houses and hospitals for the poor. As it was disagreeable, dangerous and badly paid, male professionals did not compete for the work. Elderly poor women were employed by Norwich in 1570 to nurse patients in almshouses. By the end of the century, women were working in most parishes to inspect dead bodies for the cause of death to prevent the spread of plague. A law regulating physicians and surgeons passed in 1512, apparently to prevent sorcery and witchcraft among medical practitioners signaled the end the start of a campaign to drive folk healers and cunning women out of business. The College of Physicians, formed six years later, claimed that any practitioner outside the college was not to be trusted, and of course women could not join the college or attend the men-only universities. Wealthy patients were persuaded, moving from female healers to members of the college in the 16th century, and the College of Physicians undertook 29 prosecutions of women between 1550 and 1600 and issued unknown numbers of formal warnings and exclusions to prevent anyone from practicing surgery and doctoring without one of its licenses. 
and I'll just skip ahead to a bit. The Physician and Surgeons Guild tried to professionalize medical work by rejecting experience as a qualification and requiring a university degree to enter the profession, which women could not attain, by publishing medical books in Latin, which no one but highly educated women could read, and by informally banning entry to women healers. They improved their own status by speaking derogatively of women practitioners as the status of folk medicine and herbalism fell, as the pay for healing fell, men moved out of the craft of healing and tried to enter the professions of medicine and surgery, leaving folk healing and cunning work for women. The increasingly negative definitions of the nature of women found in the woman-hater pamphlets matched the supposed nature of witches, emotional, angry, credulous, easily tempted, indecisive, and uncontrollably oversexed. Most of those accused of witchcraft were women, and two-thirds of them were poor single women. Many of them had been known as traditional healers and had been demonized by the new College of Surgeons. And I think for everything I had read about the history of witchcraft and the persecution of people who were considered to be witches, a huge proportion of whom were women, um, I had never thought that there was a practical um, legal reason that those women were marginalized. And this had, as you show, n not only an effect of leading to the persecution of women, but also in terms of midwifery especially, a very deleterious effect on women's health. Can you say something about that? Yeah, well, it's a disaster, really. So... Uh if, if you're a midwife working, a woman of experience in childbirth, but no professional qualifications, working from your home in your community, you go to your patient when she starts to feel labor pains and you stay with her until the baby is born. Uh, the women were so highly regarded that they were, had to be licensed by the bishop in the medieval world because they might be called upon to baptize the baby um, or... Uh, hear the confession of a dying mother. So they ha are, have high status. But as men want to move into the, into the midwifery profession, which happens around about the 19th century, partly because they introduce one particular family, invent forceps, so they can do uh, the delivery of a baby stuck in the birth canal, which before could not be done, it would just die. You just had to wait for the baby to die, and then, uh, or the mother to die. And if the mother died, you could do a cesarean and get the baby out. If the baby died, you just had to wait for it, the baby to die. And then you, you would try, I'm sorry, this is tremendously gruesome. You try to cut it up inside the womb and pull it out in bits. Um, that's what farmers do with calves. So, you know, there's that skill is present in the community. So anyway, we get to the 19th century, and because a uh, family of male doctors have invented forceps, they then become, they then move into, with this new technology, they then move into the midwifery business, and they immediately start charging extraordinarily high fees and start suggesting that women midwives are incompetent and that you'd better get a man midwife at extraordinarily high fees. And they call themselves accoucheurs. So you get this sort of snob French, you know, I have an accoucheur, you know, not having some woman from down the road. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but because they take multiple patients, because they want 
the extremely high fees. They don't stay with the woman from when labor starts to the birth of the baby. They visit and they go to another patient in between time. Or, because they're a general doctor, many of them, they might go to a patient dying of some infectious disease and come straight on. And it's not until incredibly late that they realize that postpuerperal fever and uh, childbirth fever is being caused by doctors going from one sick woman to a healthy woman trying to give birth and then going on. And when you start hospitalizing births, this becomes even worse because they're literally going from bed to bed down a ward and never washing their hands and never changing their clothes because nobody then understands germ theory. They don't understand that they're doing it. The guy who, dis who discovers this was actually a naval surgeon and he was on shore leave and he was working as a doctor in a Glasgow, I think, hospital. And he says, it is a dis disagreeable fact to realize that I myself was carrying the disease from one woman to another. And he is immediately driven out of medicine, uh, returned to the seas to be a naval surgeon. And everybody ignores what he says, because as a Philadelphia surgeon says, uh, doctors are gentlemen, and gentlemen's hands are clean. And literally, there's this kind of cull of women in childbirth, which goes on until Louis Pasteur and um, I think it's Alexander Lister establish such a thing as germ theory. And it becomes accepted that even gentlemen might wash their hands. <laughs> it really is extraordinary. Let's talk a little bit about women and, and politics, revolting women. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I was fascinated by what you, now moving back in time a little bit, you write so wonderfully about the peasants' revolt, which again is, insofar as I knew that history, that was history I associated with man, Watt Tyler, but again, there are these very significant women who it's, we, I had not heard of. No, it, 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 was, it was news to me when I was doing the research, so we all, um, those of us who were privileged to go to a school that didn't go Tudors, suffragettes, Nazis, which is how history is taught in England today. Those of us who actually managed to do a bit of medieval history along the way. Um, Watt Tyler is the, allegedly, the leader of the Watt Tyler revolt, is the peasants' revolt. It's actually a signal of the end of feudalism. So basically you're taught that Watt Tyler marches at the head of his men to London and um, his attack on London signals uh, the, the collapse of feudalism. So nobody starts trying to uh, do the feudal charges anymore. In fact, before he sets off on his march, he breaks into Canterbury Castle to free two women rebels who were imprisoned there for already rising up, as if he can't go to London without them. And they march at his side and the three of them lead the men and women of Kent to London, where they find that the Savoy Palace is sacked by two London women. Another London woman takes the gold from John of Gaunt's Savoy Palace and ships it down the river and divides it to other women. Another woman's on the quayside when uh, the Chief Justice is running towards his barge with a mob behind him, and she lets his boat go. And there he is stuck on the edge of the river with no way of getting out. And it's uh, yet another woman who is at the Tower of London and pulls out uh, the Archbishop and I think the Lord High Treasurer and executes them on the spot. While she's doing that, Watt Tyler is negotiating with the king, and it's his word 
as a man that they the king that the king needs to say that the revolution is over and he is killed during those negotiations anyway so the rebellion collapses but it has the effect of the ending feudalism and the feudal structure throughout england as a system of law except of course for women who remain bound to their husbands for life without escape whose property becomes their husbands on marriage without exemption and whose body and the use of their body remains in the husband's entire <coughs> control and keeping until literally the 20th century i think it's about 19 in the 1960s i think um that rape from a husband on his wife becomes a crime up until prior to that marriage was permanent <coughs> consent permanent consent permanent consent so on your wedding day you say yes you will take him as your husband and you have to take him as your husband thereafter i want to ask you a little bit about how you wrote this book it's such an extraordinary feat of research and your previous novels are set in particular i mean they're very expansive but they're set in particular periods as we were discussing before you'd never written anything sort of prior to no, no, 16, nothing before 1600 yes nothing yeah. before 1600 yeah. so tell us a little bit about again this you know it took you more than a decade what was most daunting about it what was most exciting talk a little bit about the process literally every day was exciting that was the wonderful thing that uh, i i decided to research it chronologically because quite early on i decided to write it chronologically there was this kind of moment where i went shall i do themes so shall i do witches through history and then start again and do women soldiers through history and then shall i start again and do and i went that's going to be incredibly repetitive right. have yeah. to go back yeah. so the so then i went okay i'll start at 1066 and that was actually far easier to research it like that so basically i read all the books that i could find about 1066 and then started thinking about it so all the books all the material you know that i've got a massive bibliography at the end of it most of the material is published a lot of it in in very 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 good histories but what nobody i think nobody has done before is gone like i am going to look at this long span of women's national history i'm going to look at anybody in england over this long span and then i think the other thing that is probably new is that i'm not going to pick out the the good stories i'm not going to pick out the heroines this isn't this isn't a list of interesting women this is much 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 more about what what is the what is the history that we don't know so we get the national history of england and we think that's the history of women and it isn't it's it's the history of men with two or three stars so it was a very um it was a very thorough first read of the material and then i made acres of notes and then i actually thought i'm actually going to write this chronologically as well so i wrote the 1066 section and the other thing i wanted to do was i wanted to not do it in reigns so i think reigns of kings is fundamental to male history so i went like i don't really care which charles is on the throne what i'm interested in is what are the women doing and yes. they don't really care which charles is on the throne many of them don't care at all which charles is on the throne many of them don't want any 
Charles on the throne at all. They want an Oliver. <laughs> um, so, uh, so then when I was writing, I, I thought 1066 to the Black Death is a really coherent era where you can see an enormous change in women's circumstances and then the Black Death brings in another enormous change. So even writing the dates with women in mind gave me a different chronology. And that's when I started getting deeply excited and went like, this is truly something very different. But also, what was really exciting about it, is like I was making it up as I went along. So what are the rules for this book? Okay, it's going to be in women's epochs. It's going to be from the point of view of women. It's going to be what matters to women. So there's tons of kings I don't even mention. I took a particular pleasure in never using a man's name if I could avoid it. Yes, <laughs> I think there are enough men's names in history. Yes. But, but whenever I found a woman's name attached to an occupation, like that little bit I read for you about women in medicine, if I have the name of a woman who is a surgeon in a hospital, I don't just say women were in medicine. I give you her name. Well, and I think this is the thing, you know, which uh, another thing I think is wonderful about the book is that it, while it isn't about just highlighting the extraordinary stories of women um, as individual women, where there are these women, I was struck by Eleanor Code, another industrialist, Anna Garthwaite, you know, they are used as exemplars of many other women working in their time. Um, Tell us, before we open the floor to questions, tell us a little bit about the title. I love the title. How did that come to you? Uh, well, it was originally called A Brief History of Normal Women. And I thought that was a really funny title for what I knew was going to be a completely enormous book about extraordinary women. And then the more I used it as a title, the more I realized that normal women, that, like they're all normal whether they're a highway woman or whether they're a pirate or whether they're a queen or whether they're someone weaving, they are all normal women. They all start from, most of them start in poverty and most of them make the best they can out of their lives and that's what normal women do. And I had this real sense of my own lineage, the sense that I am a normal woman and I come from normal women and like none of them as well with one exception, and it happens that she's an 18th century novelist, historian, which is kind of funny. <laughs> That's my great, 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 great aunt, and there she is. And so, but she was definitely a normal woman, you know, and you, when you read her diaries, she has the experience of normal women everywhere. And then in addition to that, she has a rather extraordinary working life. But so do we all. You know, it was what I wanted really to reclaim was the the heroic quality of normal women's lives. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us about, before we open to questions, tell us about the, the normal woman on the cover, Mary Edwards. This is a picture of Mary Edwards. I will tell you very, very briefly her story. She's an 18th century heiress. She was said to be the richest woman in England. She married a completely useless man. 
the second son of a lord. So no money, no title. He, I think he was hugely handsome and he was a guardsman, so he had a cracking uniform. And she married him. <laughs> And she married him and they were apparently happy and they had a son together. And uh, the marriage was announced in the newspaper uh, and uh, all was going well. And when she discovered that he had stolen her shares in the East India Company, the basis of her entire fortune. And of course, he hadn't stolen them because they were married. So they were his anyway. But he had taken them out of the East India Company and had, had them exclusively to himself. And so... She was confronted, as so many women are, with the fact that her husband had chosen to take her money and that there was nothing she could do about it. But she uh, announced that they had never been married, that he was not her husband, therefore that she was a whore and her son was a bastard. And she said to him, we have never been married, I am a whore, your son is a bastard, and I'm going to sue you for my money because you are now just a thief. And there was no, you know, she probably burned her marriage lines. There was no comeback for him from this position because he was not her husband. So he did not have the right to all her money. So he just vanished. And you would think it being 18th century England that she would be in intense shame. And because she was a rich woman, she wasn't in intense shame. People visited her perfectly pleasantly. She remained in her lovely house in St. James's Street. She had her lovely house in the country village of Kensington, where she went <laughs> for the summer. And she raised her son, and she was a patron of the arts. And she had this, this portrait painted of herself by Hogarth, surrounded by symbols of singledom and independence. And her name is Mary Edwards, and she's a normal woman and a heroine. <laughs> let's um, let's have some questions. Uh, you can ask your questions. Um, I'm. Do we have a roving microphone for the audience? We do. And then we also, I think, we'll have some questions from online. Um, but is there anyone in the audience who wants to kick off? There's a lady right in the front here. Thank you for every word you've ever written. It's been a real great ride. Thank you. So following that, how did you keep your novelist self out of the true stories that you were telling? How did you stop from just wanting to make up more juicy stuff to go with it? <laughs> um, well, even in the novels, if I have this, if I'm following a life, uh, then I stay on the life. I, I, I only invent uh, when it's uh, behind closed doors or a secret that we still don't know. And then I really look at the circumstances around it. So I'm pretty close to the history even when I'm writing novels. It was, I mean, Mary Edwards just seems to me to be crying out to be a novel. Um, but I don't have time right now uh, to get to her. But um, it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. I mean, my, my truest first love is history. And I love writing fiction. So uh, the, on this occasion, I just didn't make any stuff up. I didn't need to. It, it, you know, the, the stories themselves are so extraordinary. Um, and also, until I researched them, I wouldn't have believed them. You know, like Mary Edwards, I wouldn't have made up a story like that about an 18th century woman. I would have said it wasn't possible to do. You know, reality is always better than fiction, actually. 
Should I take one from yes, online? Please yes, please do. Um, we have a question here that says, um, how should women mobilise now against food prices, equal pay and women's opportunities? Well, women have been mobilising for equal pay and against rising food prices for centuries. I mean, one of the big visible presences of women in history is at the food riot. So women have been rioting against food. And it's not, I think, legal for me to tell you to go and riot. Uh, so I won't do that, but I will say your history and your traditions and your lineage is of not putting up with this stuff at the level that it is approaching. And uh, I presumably, the, now that we have the vote, you can use the vote. But um, I, you know, I just, I, I really see no, I really see nothing but a bad future for this country unless we get a government in that cares about the poor since we are all going to become more poor under the current system. So, you know, your foremothers won the vote for you. Make sure you use it and make sure your friends use it. And Christ's sake, vote Labour. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry, it's me. Yep. Um, I'm reading Invisible Women at the moment. I don't know if you've read it. And um, so your bit about women and being made witches, etc. I mean, at the moment, still... I was just reading about statins, all the tests are all done on men and, um, and they're talking about women's physiotomy is different, how we react to everything. So I was wondering, because of reading this at the moment, um, who's the last woman in your book? Oh, uh, the last woman in my book is, uh, I talk about the ordination of women in uh, 1994. So it's probably a bishop. Uh, and the re that sounds rather eccentric, but the reason is is that from the time that uh, the from the time that women are allowed to give extreme unction during the plague to 1994, uh, women were not allowed to serve in church as members of the clergy. And when the Reformation comes, they're not even allowed to. Uh, there is no profession for women in the church. So the women's demand to represent God, to speak directly to God without the intercession of a male priest, and their belief that God would hear them and that God could, could reply through them, is in fact a claim for spiritual equality, which, although it's not very significant to those of us who aren't churchgoers, at the time, it was huge, and in the medieval world, it was absolutely huge. And I think to accept that a woman has a soul equal to that of a man is part of the, the claim for equality, which we're still struggling with today. And this is, it's a history, it's a British history, and this is a country with an established absolutely. church. State church. So it has yeah. that connection yeah. too, yeah. I think. Another from, one from online? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think women should be alert to the lessons of the spinning Jenny by taking homeworking roles now post-pandemic and leaving husbands free to return to the office? You'll have to read that to me again. I, I kind of, you lost me. Try, sorry, try again. Do you think women yeah. should be alert to the lessons of the spinning Jenny by taking homeworking roles now post-pandemic and leaving husbands free to return to the office? No, of course not. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I don't think the spinning jenny teaches us anything except that early industrialization is very, very hard on the workers and that women always get the worst jobs. But that doesn't mean to say you don't go out to work. 
That means to say you go out to work and you demand proper education, proper training and proper opportunities. And how would people survive if there was only one wage coming in? And how would women get it if it was only paid to men? I mean, I'm sorry, but that, I, even when you repeated it, I still can make no sense of that question. Sorry. <laughs> I think one of the um, fascinating things that you draw attention to, if we're talking about the subject of the work that happens in the home, mm -hmm. is the way in which labor-saving devices were actually anything but. No, they just uh, increase the standards. So women have always done more work domestically than men. And when you, when a woman goes out to work, she still does more work domestically than her husband. And when she, when her pay exceeds his, she does more work domestically, as if to apologize for winning. Uh, so, I mean, literally, if what one, what, what one was thinking is how do we improve the conditions of women at the home, I think, I genuinely think that we have to start talking about the productive value of women at the home and how much that is. And I believe, uh, I'm very bad with numbers, so I won't guess, but in terms of gross domestic product in this country, it is billions of pounds worth of value which is added to the country by women's work at home. And that includes cooking and cleaning and- Unpaid labor. And don't, I mean, that's before you even get started on the care work that women automatically do, that men do not. Who in the audience? Yes? Um, thanks, Paula Primary, looking forward to reading this. Um, I wondered what's your favorite primary source and why? Oh. Well, I'll give you two. That there are millions. That, well, no, I'll give you more than two. There's one called Legal Landmarks. I can't remember the rest of the title, but it's about how the law has been changed by women to advantage women. And that's a fantastically interesting record of how what looks like rather technical, rather, you know, potentially rather dreary thing. So you've got these extraordinary moments like the criminalization of marital rape, like the Married Woman's Property Act, which means that women can own their them. So that's a great one. There's a lovely book by a historian called Bernard Capp called When Gossips Meet, which has such a disagreeable title, I think, but actually is, a, <laughs> is about medieval women and their day-to-day -day lives and how they are in their community. It's a big, fat, wonderful book, very, very absorbing. And then in terms of a document, the Bayer Tapestry, is a fantastic document and it can be read as a document. So what you see is the incredible invasion of these highly, highly trained, violent men in the main part of the, and in the margins, you see the women. There are three women in the margin, one fleeing from a burning building, one being attacked by a naked man with an erect penis, one being attacked by a naked man with an erect penis and an ax. And I think it's almost like a coded message from the women of England who wove and embroidered the tapestry, who were commissioned to show a victorious army, and they showed a victorious army, but also in the margins say to us, look at how they are, look at what they're allowed to do. And that story of violence against women completely inexcusable, unprovoked violence against women, not controlled by the society, is our story today. 
I just wanted to ask, um, how difficult did you find it to find primary sources written by women themselves? Because I know there's an archival silence where if women were illiterate, they wouldn't have been documented and archives are obviously um, favoured, by, written by the, the dominant the men. Absolutely. There's about three Elizabethan diaries by Elizabethan women and the irony of it is, is that... Uh, the bits that are the most interesting to me as a social historian are the smallest bits in it. So when she's talking about walking out of the harvest, when she's talking about telling her husband that he's got the sense of whatever it is, shopping, all of that's completely riveting to me. But the diary is a spiritual diary, so it's what she thinks God thinks of her. That's what the diary is about. So it's very, very frustrating in that sense. There's about three Elizabethan diaries. You don't get much written by women uh, until about 1660, when you get enough literacy amongst women so that they do actually write of their experiences. And you get the English Civil War means that women are writing to each other, trying to keep families together, and they're writing to run businesses when they're separate from their business. That a lot of women went into exile with their husbands. So you get this real explosion of women writing down recipes for their daughters, writing down medicines, and people starting to realise that these are valuable, people being glad of women's writings, collecting them and keeping them. But then equally, you have some courtly women. Uh, so Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's court has, you know, very excellent writers in it, women writers in it. And, of course, Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's last wife, the first woman to publish in English under her own name. Just an extraordinary. So there are writings, but they don't always they don't always have the content that I as a social historian want, but that's my problem, not theirs. <laughs> do we have uh, any more questions from the um, from our online audience? We do, we have one more here. Um, why did you decide to end the book in nineteen ninety four? I wanted to end uh, with the, the moment that women achieved spiritual equality with the, uh, the Church of England accepting that women could be ordained as vicars. So it, it actually ends on a victory, which is nice as well. <laughs> and then there was... Me. Yes, thank you. Um, in the context of Europe, I would say as an outsider, England always seemed pretty progressive in terms of women's rights. And I'm curious, what is your view on the prism of women's progress across Europe and how it compares to that of England? I, I won't even pretend to know. I, I, this, this isn't even Britain. This is, this is England. England, because it's so different. Even in Wales, Scotland's so different again. I mean, Scotland has its own legal system. Um, it's a different kingdom for, for much of the duration of the book. What I think, the only, the only thing I know which I will offer you my solitary fact, which is that there is a far higher proportion of single women in the population who never marry in England than there is in France, almost all the way through the period, and I think in England rather than there is in Europe. And I think that's because, because of the married, because of the disadvantages of marriage for women that a lot of English women avoided marriage or married very late. This wasn't advertised as a women's event, but I look around and I don't know that I see many men. Um, do you hope that many men will read your book? I mean, I know publishers wouldn't give you that kind of information, but do you have many male readers? It's just I, a bit, I mean, it's a bit sad, isn't it? <laughs> 
well, no. I mean, <laughs> like, full house, I don't mind. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's fabulous to have everybody here, but I'm just thinking if we're going to change culture, then... Um, well, no, I mean, I think if nice men could change the culture, they would have done so by now. Um, I think, literally, this is, this is a book about women's history, so it's available to anybody who wants to buy it. I'm struck that I have probably more male readers than anybody would think. You know, we tend to think that I write uh, novels about women in history and that we know that men don't buy fiction as much as women buy fiction. Men don't buy women authors as much as women buy women authors. And I don't think men... I think men... Historical fiction directed for men is quite different in, the, in terms of the historical fiction that I write, which isn't directed to any particular reader. I would be very, very keen uh, that this becomes a book which, which people discuss. Um, I think what matters is, I don't think it's going to change anything. All it's supposed to change is the understanding of history. Uh, it's, not to, it's not directed as a way of changing society. But I think once you realize why women are in the what our history has been, it gives you ideas about what you want the future to be. But it is also a good point about how women's stories are perceived in the context of who wants to access them. I've always been struck by, um, I've done events about Call the Midwife, which is a show I love. Its creator is Heidi Thomas, and when she proposed Call the Midwife, which is the most successful show on British terrestrial television, she was asked but surely only women will watch this. She also created a show called Soldier, Soldier, and no one said, aren't you afraid that only men yes. will watch this? <laughs> Thank you. Don't need a microphone because I'm a man and you can all hear me. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. No, um, re related to the last question, um, I'm curious about why, this is going to be a very naive question, but why does it keep repeating why, you know, I've been alive long enough to have known this when I was a young kid, that it wasn't equal, and I was kind of expecting it to have... You know, Changed? Yeah, gone the, or even the other way, you know? Like, um, I'm just curious as to your thoughts of why this cycle seems to repeat through history. Um, I, I literally think it's because the prophets... We, we, we obviously live in a society which is designed to produce financial profits for people investing it, investing in it, and then the profits to increase, and then the investment to increase. And it's absolutely essential for this society to carry on delivering profits that there is a reserve army of people who are underpaid and uh, will step into jobs in, in times of expansion and will step out of them in times of recession. And I think... The reason that it's never going to stop is because we have a society which is rigged for inequality and at the bottom of the society are minority women and especially poor women at, at the bottom of society. So I just think that once you, once you accept that you've got an unequal society, you're going to have 
big groups who always pick up the inequality. Capitalism depends on inequality. Do you know, I really try and avoid, for for fear of upsetting people's sensibilities, but basically patriarchy and capitalism go absolutely hand in hand and we're not going to beat one until we change the other. And that's an even bigger call, I think. Someone at the back? Yes. Hello. Um, um, thank you very much for the talk. It's been fascinating. I can't wait to read the book. You researched and wrote about so many interesting women, and probably it's difficult for you to pick only one that fascinated you the most. But my question is actually about, was there a woman, uh, when you were doing all your research, not only for the last book, for all the books that you wrote, that actually was in a position of power, so to say, uh, depending, of course, on the period that she was living, that actually disappointed you? Oh, I'm terribly disappointed in Elizabeth I. I really, I'm terribly disappointed in Elizabeth I. I can't I'll be tell you to hear how, how bitter I am about Elizabeth I. Because under Elizabeth I, although she, you know, she's great at the Armada and she takes the throne and she's, you know, a real symbol of women's power and authority, under her rule, come in some of the most restrictive labor laws uh, that are ever written and they are deliberate and they bear down the worst on women under her rule, under her government, by her instruction for all I know, um, come in the poor laws which um, take individual giving from the local lords and make them an official part of the community which actually create a sort of incredibly cruel divisive benefit system and which take their part in demonizing the poor so you don't want poor people in your parish and uh, also I mean she's also involved with slavery so um, I'm very disappointed in Elizabeth I yes (laughs) good question Um, one last question from our audience is there someone? If not, we'll have one more online question. Oh, someone just said. Oh, someone raised their hand there. In a way, it's a comment, because um, I've got daughters in STEM, and one is 24, and she's going into schools talking. I mean, she's a mechanical engineer. And on her course, there were three women and 113 guys. Gosh. Now, a friend of mine who did engineering 50 years ago was the same numbers then. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, women aren't going into it. But when she was in a school and uh, with six formers, they asked, how much do you earn? And the teachers were, shh, you don't ask that. And my daughter said, yes, you do, because unless we are transparent, that's why inequality of pay would exist. But we are. It's vulgar to talk about money. That's how I was brought up. And I think we've got to be talking, and as you're saying, be open. Otherwise, it does perpetuate. So Absolutely. it was a comment, but following on from much of what you've said. And I, yeah, in reality, is I'm here with my partner, and we were here last week with Marcus de Satoy, because I'm a mathematician, and it was mainly men at that, a bit more <laughs> of a mix. I'm here now with you, history, because I'm interested in history, and yeah, it is all women. But, um, and my book club's all women, so but we'll have to try and spread it out. Thank you very much, though. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Well, that's a good note to end on, that we need to keep fighting for transparency and equality and reading this book will help. Thank you so much, Philippa Gregory. This episode starred Philippa Gregory and was presented by Erica Wagner. It was produced by me, and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. 
If you enjoyed it, allow me to tempt you to listen to our past episodes with Maggie O'Farrell on Hamnet Shakespeare, Young Chang on the Soong Sisters, and Greg Jenner on everything you've always wanted to ask a historian. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>